0: This is HPR episode 2397 entitled The Urban Astronomer. It is hosted by Dave Morris and is about 33 minutes long and carries a clean flag. The summary is an introduction to an astronomy podcast that you might like.
1: This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15.
2: Hello everyone, this is Dave Morris for Hacker Public Radio. Now today I'm going to introduce another podcast, which is a thing that anybody can do, um, and uh, give a sample of the podcast as a recommendation to the HPR audience. The one I'm going to talk about and uh, present to you today is called The Urban Astronomer. I'm interested in astronomy and listen to a number of astronomy podcasts. And some of these I've listed in the past. And this one is one that I've recently come across within the past year, I think, is uh, when I started to hear it. The Urban Astronomer um, has a website and a a feed, both of which I've put in as links in the the notes to accompany this episode. The site and the podcast are run by Alan Fersfeldt. Excuse me, Alan, hesitating over how to pronounce your name because... Not entirely sure, but that's how I think he pronounces it. Alan's based in South Africa. Anyway, I've been enjoying Alan's episodes a lot. He does a lot of interviews with some very interesting people in the world of astronomy. He has a really relaxed interviewing style, which I certainly find appealing. I enjoy interviews in general, and I hope you'll feel the same way. I wrote to him commenting on one of his episodes recently, and I mentioned Hacker Public Radio in my email and he's subscribed to HPR. I think he said subscribe, but he's certainly been listening to to selected episodes. And he's also been kind enough to mention HBR on one of his recent podcasts. So today I'm offering you a chance to listen to one of his episodes. And the one that I've chosen is number 12 from June the 16th, 2017. It's an interview with Jen Millard, who is first-year astronomy PhD student at Cardiff University in the UK. Jen is also a host on the Awesome Astronomy podcast and uh, you'll hear something about that in the um, the episode that's going to follow. So I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Urban Astronomer Podcast. (music)
0: Hi, and welcome to the 12th episode of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. I'm recording this week from my booth at the 2017 Icon Comics and Games Convention, where we are promoting Scopex, the annual telescope and astronomy expo held in Johannesburg at the Military History Museum. Uh, we're having a lot of fun here. There's a full of nerds and geeks being themselves, and a lot of cosplay folks showing off their great costumes, and it's just a lovely vibe. If you're in the area, you should absolutely come by and join the fun. Maybe come to our stand and say Hello. Uh, We're here until Sunday, the 18th, at Gallagher Estate Convention Center. Meanwhile, as we promised last week, here is an interview that I recorded with Jen Millard, who you might already know from the Awesome Astronomy podcast. She's an astronomy PhD student from the United Kingdom who recently came to South Africa to observe exoplanets through the telescope in Sutherland. We chatted for about a half an hour about her work, uh, about what South Africa has to offer astronomers from around the world, and the Martian heritage of her fellow podcasters from Awesome Astronomy.
3: what i actually do is a very interesting question because i'm not sure what i do half the time to be honest mm-hmm. but um no so i'm a 1st year phd student um so i've sort of done my undergraduate degree did my masters um now starting my phd so my phd is in uh far infrared submillimeter astronomy really okay uh using the herschel atlas um where the Herschel Atlas was the largest key survey carried out by the Herschel Space Telescope, uh, which launched in 2009, uh, ceased to work in 2013, which was planned because it was a um, far-infrared mission. So far-infrared, you're looking at very, very cool objects.
0: So this is one uh, of those where it ends when the coolant runs out.
3: If yeah, exactly. So it was cooled using liquid helium, which is at a temperature of 4 kelvin so that's like minus 269 degrees celsius um and as soon as that coolant runs out it you know it just boils away in space essentially mm. and as soon as that coolant's gone all the telescope can see is its own heat and its own radiation so then it essentially becomes blind to anything that you actually want to see so that's why they have a finite lifetime okay but yeah so i'm kind of looking at dying stars within that data. And then um, I'm also going to be doing um, some stuff with galaxies, but I haven't really started that yet. Then the other stuff I'm doing is all to do with exoplanets, which is probably what you want to talk about because that's why I went to South Africa.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, actually. uh...
3: Yeah, no. so the the exoplanets thing was um, a project that I started between finishing my master's and starting my PhD. Um, One of the, the lecturers sort of advertised a job and I didn't go for it initially because I had a few holidays planned and I thought, well, they'll just get in the way of it. Yeah. But then he contacted me and was like, Jen, would you be interested? And I was like, maybe, maybe not. So uh, we had a meeting and it sounded really interesting. So I started working on the project over the summer and it sort of carried on a little bit into the start of my PhD. Um, and then the opportunity to go observing came up. So um, my supervisor said, you may as well go. Um, seeing as it's a project that you've worked on, so you have an interest in the data, it makes sense for you to go. So then I spent a bit of time, you know, preparing for the observing run, going on the observing run, and then I spent a little bit of time on the data afterwards.
0: Okay. Um, so this doesn't tie into your PhD itself then? This is uh, an extra project that you did? Sort of... Yeah,
3: this is like an extra project. So I'm still going to be working on this, but it's going to be kind of a, a fraction of my time. Um, as to oppose, as opposed to like the, the biggest part of my time, which is going to be all like the Herschel stuff and that. Um, but it's cool. I mean, it's always good to kind of get yourself involved in projects which are outside of your PhD. It looks good for trying to get jobs afterwards.
0: It also sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, to be able to, I mean, this is your profession, I suppose, in a sense. And uh, well, that looks like fun. I'm going to do that as well. And you just do it.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, as long as, you know, the the powers that be, as it were, are like, yeah, okay, that's fine, whatever, which they generally are. I mean, as long as it's something, you know, reasonably sensible, and it's going to be good for you, then I'm fortunate in the, in the career path that I've chosen that people generally let you do what you like, mm. which is great.
0: So what was the, I mean, so, so, okay, the project was about exoplanets. What, what specifically were you doing? I mean, what was it about?
3: Okay, so the, the project for exoplanets is um, trying to do, it's like a proof of concept. It's trying to do something which hasn't been done before, which is always great. Mm-hmm. And um, so what we're trying to do is measure the phase variation part of the light curve using ground-based observations, which is a whole bunch of jargon. I know. Yes, I know. I'm busy now. creasing yeah. my brow
0: trying to see if I can figure this out before yeah, you tell yeah, me. Yeah,
3: yeah, I... no, <laughs> That is a massive load of jargon and it's no use to anyone, but that is that is like the title, as it were. Mm-hmm. So um, the exoplanets that we're looking at are trans-exoplanets. And so uh, what that means is when we look at the, the star planet system from Earth, uh, we physically see the planet passing in front of the star. Uh, so we, we know this because we detect a dip in the light output from the host star and the dip in the light output is regular and it's the same duration and the same sort of depth and that's how these sort of exoplanets are discovered rather than it being you know um, like an asteroid in our own solar system or something the fact that it's regular, it's repeatable that's Mm. what tells us it's an exoplanet and the exoplanets that we're looking at are called hot Jupiters and the name is is really self-explanatory for once in astronomy yeah. because that never happens. The name is never self-explanatory, but it really is in this case. So hot Jupiters are large, gaseous planets like Jupiter, but instead of orbiting, you know, really far out from their host star, they orbit very, very close to it. So um, the stars, that we've, the star planet systems that we've been looking at, the planets actually take less than a day to orbit their parent star, which is just incredible. Mm. Um, and we're using these systems because they exaggerate the phase curve part. Now, uh, yeah. so you need to kind of picture this in your mind's eye. Are you mm-hmm. ready? We're gonna like draw a graph in your mind's eye. So, All right. along the bottom axis, we're gonna have time, and on the on the y-axis, kind of the vertical axis, we're gonna have brightness. Right? So you have got maximum brightness, and then you've got like. Brightness decreasing as you go down. Yeah. Now, when the planet passes in front of the star, as viewed from Earth, we get a dip in the light. Uh You can you can visualize that. It's like it's like a gnat passing in front of a car headlight. So the dip is very, very small, Uh but we can still detect it. Right. Now, a little bit later on in time, we get a second dip in the light output. And this isn't caused by the planet passing in front of the star but caused by the planet passing behind the star. Now, why is this? Sorry, go on.
0: I was going to say, much fainter than... A much smaller dip than, obviously.
3: Yes, yeah, the dip is much, much smaller. And this is because you're losing all of the light from the day side of the planet. So if you imagine looking at this star with this planet orbiting around it, as the planet is just about to go behind its parent star you can see all of the day side of the planet and then as soon as it pops behind that star you lose all of that reflected light and all of that emitted light and so we get a very a much smaller but still detectable dip in the light then in between the amount of light you get kind of slowly varies now this is how you have to picture it so you're looking at the star if you could with your eyes without kind of burning them. oh no
0: no i think i'm with you here so the phase you're talking mm. about is the phase of the planet As
3: we're seeing it. Yes, exactly. And that is the phase of the moon. Yeah, exactly. So when the planet pops out from behind the star, you can see all of the day side. And then as it makes its way around its orbit, so it's going to do that transit in front of it, you slowly, slowly see less and less of the day side, more and more of the night side, until as the planet starts transiting again, all you can see is the night side. And then that slow variation in the amount of light reflected and emitted from the planet is the phase curve. And that's what we're trying to detect. Now, it's been detected using space-based telescopes, but not ground-based telescopes. Right. So we're trying to prove that you can do it using ground-based telescopes.
0: And what is it useful for?
3: So from the phase curve, you can get all sorts of interesting things about the atmosphere of the planet. Um, so you can figure out things like, has it got a thick atmosphere? Has it got a thin atmosphere? Um, is there a lot of energy kind of transmitted from the day side to the night side? Um, things like that. All right. So, yeah, it's useful for looking at the, the atmosphere of the planet.
0: All right. So what instrument did you use for that? I mean, which, which telescope were you looking through?
3: So the telescope we use um, is called the IRSF telescope. So the uh, Infrared Survey Facility, I okay.
1: think.
3: Don't quote me on that. i to mm. double check. Just because I've gone so long now just calling it, oh, it's the IRSF, <laughs> that I forget what the acronym actually means. Um. So it's Japanese owned, but it's based up in Sutherland. So your neck of the woods, as it were, in South Africa. <laughs> well, um, about
0: a thousand kilometers away, but yeah.
3: <laughs> I, I say your neck of the woods. It's more your neck of the woods than my neck of the woods yeah, right, yeah. in the UK. So, But um, it's a 1.4 meter telescope and it operates in the near infrared. So um, if anyone's interested about the wavelength, the wavelengths are around about two microns. Um, so it's kind of just outside what we can see. Uh, with our eyes um it's in it's in the near infrared and we do that because the in the near infrared the difference between the planet's brightness and the stellar brightness is is better for us because the planet is brighter in the infrared and the star is dimmer so it just helps us see the changes that we want to see easier
0: Mm, okay the telescope if i i seem to recall uh a presentation from one of the the, the engineers up there that's one of those in those funny little clamshell mounts isn't it or am i thinking of another no,
3: one no uh no this one's this one's got a proper dome okay this one this one is the one where it's got a proper dome and everything and it's the only telescope up there with um a distinctive heartbeat um i recorded the heartbeats which i can actually send you that if you want to uh drop it in the show obviously edit that bit out but yeah yeah all right um but yeah the the telescope um has its own heartbeat and it's it's really really distinctive um and the sound of the heartbeat is actually caused by um the helium pumps used to cool the detectors okay. um, and you, you can hear it for for ages way so there's <laughs> there's no um bathroom facilities actually in the irsf you've got to wander over to a different telescope to use it yeah so when you're kind of trying to fumble your way back to the telescope in the dark it's really useful because you just listen out for the sound <laughs> and then just head for it yeah but yeah it's uh is it's it's like a naughty child though that telescope
0: Difficult. If you've got a
3: firm hand mm-hmm. and you, like, keep your eye on it, it'll do what you want to do. Look away for two seconds and it just goes off and does its own thing. And, yeah, crazy, craziness. Oh, man. That's
0: a, that's a very strong metaphor for me right now.
3: <laughs> oh, what well, a naughty child, yeah. Oh, I've got, I've got... It always seems to resonate with people, yeah.
0: that one. Oh, I've got so many of them, they just... <laughs> <laughs> so, why... Why did you come to South Africa to do this?
3: So, um, I mean, South Africa is great because you're Southern Hemisphere to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which means that Southern Hemisphere, you're looking into the galaxy rather than out of the galaxy. So um, when I say our galaxy, I mean the Milky Way. We we sit in a spiral arm about two-thirds of the way out from the center. right? So the Northern Hemisphere, we're looking out through about... A third, uh, well, a sixth of the stars. If you think about the whole diameter of our galaxy, whereas mm. from the southern hemisphere, you're you get the chance to look through five sixths of the galaxy. So you've got so many more stars. Um, there's so much more to see. And Sutherland is right. a you know a true dark sky area. So um, if you've ever been to a dark sky area, it's it's mind blowing. So. You know, it's you stand outside for 10 15 minutes, you let your eyes get dark adapted, and it's great to sort of go out there and, and wait for your dark adaption to happen because you just, you know, you start out and you can see the constellations, right? You can see the Southern Cross, uh, all the other constellations which are in the southern hemisphere, which I do not know, but we'll gloss over that, yeah. <laughs> and um, <laughs> uh, mo- and... most
0: of them are just incredibly faint, little fifth magnitude stars, and they're like. Yeah. the drawing compass or... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And impressive stuff.
3: Yeah. Mm. But then you slowly start to see more stars and then the constellations get lost in all the stars that you see. And then all of a sudden you'll start seeing these these almost clouds appearing in the sky and you re- realise that, you know, it, it's not actually clouds, it's dust lanes. Yeah. And the fact that you can see it with your naked eye is just mind-blowing. And in South Africa, you know... Um, sutherland the the site of the the telescope is you know it's it there aren't any major towns or anything anywhere near it i mean there's like a little village about a 15 minute driveway so there's basically no light pollution um and that's that's what you really look for also because it's high up on a mountain the the air is dry Mm -hmm. um Because you you can't operate a telescope anywhere that's got high humidity because you'll just get water condensing on your mirrors and your instruments, which is a massive Mm -hmm. no-no. Also, the weather is pretty good. So um, generally, at the site, as far as I'm aware, your downtime is somewhere between 25 and 30%. So what that means is um, for any given observing run, you'll lose about 25% of the days and Believe it or not, that's actually quite good. Um you'll lose them through weather, or, you know.
0: Yeah, that sounds like very that. actually sounds very good. Just just as an amateur sitting at home, I Yeah. That would be lovely.
3: Yeah, yeah, I know, exactly, right? Mm. Um, um the seeing is generally very, very good. I mean, while we were up there we were getting sub arc second seeing. Um so just in case any of your listeners don't know what a what an arc second is. Yeah. Um, so an arc second is one 60th of one sixtieth of a degree. And the moon is about half a degree across in the sky. So you, if you, you, you take, you take two full moons and then you chop it up into 60 bits and then you take one of those bits and you chop it up into 60 mm-hmm. that that's a sort of detail that you can see without the sky kind of wavering and getting in the way. Which is simply amazing. So yeah, I mean that—that's why people go to South Africa to observe.
0: Wow. Okay, that's that's so much more than I thought you were going to say. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well,
0: well, you're telling me stuff I didn't know about about Sutherland. Um, yeah. I mean, I just assumed it, it's dark and it's dry and it's got good weather, but. Wow. Oh. Okay. So.
3: Yeah, there are all hmm? sorts of factors in play. And, um, you know, generally, I mean, sometimes you get a bit of wind coming up because it's on like a plateau. So sometimes you get a little bit of wind, but there isn't really anything that's going to kind of funnel the wind um for most of the year. I mean, there are points in the year where, yeah, the wind does get funneled and you can get gusts of like 120 kilometres an hour or something silly like that. Yeah. But, you know, for most of the year, the weather is calm and it's good. And so, yeah, that's why Sutherland is used. Hmm.
0: So how was the trip? I mean, uh, was it a successful run?
3: Yeah, so um, we did struggle a little bit with weather, but that's because we're observing in winter, right? So that's the battle is you either go in winter to get longer nights, but worse weather, or you go in summer, shorter Uh nights, but probably better weather. Um, So we struggled a little bit with weather um, because we had some storms and stuff. Um, And of course, you lose the night of the storm but then also a couple of days either side of the storm you get high humidity mm. as you know the the atmosphere is kind of preparing for this storm so um we so we struggled a little bit with weather however we we covered pretty much all of the orbit at least twice and that's what we were going for um and the data quality is great so Although we didn't get as much data as we wanted, the data that we got is great um so I mean, when I got home, I spent a good week kind of doing very basic analysis just to check out the data quality mm-hmm. and it's infinitely better than what we had before so before we struggled with um tracking problems, but now our tracking is within kind of three or four pixels um and that's that's great that's exactly what we need for the work um so, yeah, the data looks good.
0: Mm. Those previous data, was that from the same site or?
3: Yeah, it was. It was from the same site and right. the same telescope. And we think the problem was. Um, so, I mean, normally, uh, if there are any kind of astrophotographers listening, you'll know that you know when you take photos, you, you focus so that your stars are nice sharp points. That's what you want. Mm-hmm. Um but what we did uh, was we defocused our stars into donut shapes. Gasp, horror, why would you do <laughs> such a thing? But uh, there, there is method to our madness. And that is we wanted to... Because we're not concerned about pretty pictures. We're concerned about making sure that our pixels don't saturate. And so by defocusing into donut shapes, we could spread the light from the stars over more pixels right. um, to, to avoid this saturation. But we think that because they were these donut shapes the tracking software was instead looking for these nice, sharp points. And because of that, it, it couldn't track properly. Oh,
0: I see. Yes.
3: Yeah, yeah. So yeah. so this time, we we tightened up the focus. And instead of having nice, sharp points, we kind of just had blurry stars. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was still a bit defocused. Uh, yeah. But it wasn't as much as before. So our light was still spread out, but not over as many pixels. Okay. And uh, that that seemed to do the trick. It seemed to track so much better.
0: We've actually got people in, our, in, in the Joburg centre of the Astronomical Society amateurs uh, doing um, photometry uh, with DSLR cameras and the like. But yeah, they've, they've described pretty much what you've <laughs> what you just talked about defocusing it. And
3: oh, well, there you go. See, I'm not making it up. No, no,
0: it's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although they don't have the tracking problem because they, they they they're using separate guide cameras and and, and so on. But
3: um... yeah, yeah, and I guess that their field of view will be so much wider yeah and stuff and um i mean we we say tracking problems i mean because for for our work we're very sensitive to how different pixels respond to light, so um i mean pixels don't respond to light in the same way uh by by a factor of a few percent so for for the average astrophotographer. It's it's fine for for the average kind of study. It's fine, mm. um, but because the changes we're looking for are so small, I mean, the transit yeah. depth, the main transit can be two percent. The eclipse, so when the planet goes behind the star, can be half percent or less, and so and the changes in between are even tinier. So, you know, we we're very very sensitive to any. Uh, different responses to pixels, which is why we really need to stay on the same pixel or as close as we can to the same pixel um, as possible. Yeah. And that's what we've been able to do this time. And that's why it was so important for us to be so pedantic about like which pixel we're on.
0: Sure, I could just... It's, oh man, I'm just, it's just so jealous to be able to track like that.
3: <laughs> I know, yeah. I think my... It was. I tell you what, when it worked, it was amazing, you know, because, I mean, when we're taking the data, as each frame is kind of finished, it pops up on the screen for us to have a look at it to make sure that, you know, the focus is okay, we can check mm-hmm. the track and stuff. And it was just so amazing to be able to see, oh, look, it's in the same place. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at the next frame, it's still there. It's yeah. still there. And, oh, it was great.
0: Uh, it sounds wonderful. So, it's, it's, well, I mean, it's, it's good that you've you got decent data and got s- something useful. I don't want to change subject. This isn't your first podcast, is it?
3: No. Uh, yeah, this is – um. well, this is the first interview I've done for another podcast, so you can take that, if you like, as uh, yeah. world first. But, no, so um.
0: <laughs> yeah, you... I'm
3: totally going to plug my own podcast now. Oh, go for uh, it. I do a do a podcast every month. It's called Awesome Astronomy. Uh, if you just Google Awesome Astronomy, it's usually the first hit. Mm. Uh we release a podcast every month um, on the 1st of the month. Uh we also release a sky guide and then generally somewhere in the month we release a podcast extra as a little goodie. So we um do we I mean we do an interview. We kind of start off with the news, so what's happened Uh, We then do an interview. We've interviewed everyone from kind of engineers through to ESA and NASA astronauts. Um, We take questions from people. You know, they email us, tweet us with their questions. We answer them. We debunk some conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. uh, and just generally chat about space and how awesome it is. So, yeah, if you want to tune in, do it. It's online. It's on iTunes. It's on Stitcher. Yeah. no, I'm familiar with yeah. it. I
0: mean, I've been listening to it for oh years now. Years. Uh, it's,
3: oh, so you were? Were you listening to it before I joined? Because I've only been on for like a year and a half.
0: Ah, uh, yes. No, I was. Well, I I don't think I ever subscribed directly. I was listening through uh, 365 Days of Astronomy.
3: Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It goes out on 365 Days of Astronomy. Yeah. Well done for reminding me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you have any spare astronauts that you don't. Uh, haven't got space to interview. <laughs> Send them over, you know.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, i tell you what, you know, you just got to contact them and ask them. The worst they can do is say no, right? Right, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, Alan Bean took us like three years to get him <laughs> or something because Ralph emailed him and was like, will you be on our show? And he emailed back and he was like, email me in three years. And so Ralph emailed him in three years uh-huh. to the date. And then to be fair, he came on and it was great.
2: I
0: think I heard that one actually. It was it was it was good.
3: Yeah, the astronaut ones are usually good because they generally start off well and then like their their uh, happy pills or something wears off and then they go a bit crazy for a while and start <laughs> talking about all sorts and, and then like their helpers or something, feed them their pills again and then they kinda of come back down to it. But uh But I think they're the, so uh, used to
0: speaking as well, because I think that's all they do when they when they come back, isn't it?
3: Is interviews yeah, and they do. talks and so, shows. Um because um paul so ralph and paul are the the co-hosts with me on awesome Me. if anyone's wondering who the mysterious ralph and paul are right um but paul was involved with Issa, uh with tim peak um he was kind of an official I can't remember what his title was but he was like an official person who went around and did activities in primary schools and things with children mm. to kind of you know advertise it and he said that you know when he landed, he kind of had about a month to recuperate, you know, build his muscles and his bones back up. And then it's just a year of non stop touring, going around, visiting people, giving talks, mm. um, doing interviews. It just doesn't stop. Um, but he's done now. All his official duties are done. So I think he's got something like six months in which he can just do whatever the hell he likes, which I think is very well deserved, quite frankly.
0: Yeah, he must be really looking forward. Well, must be really enjoying it.
3: Yes, I think well it's just well well earned, well deserved, yeah. quite frankly.
0: I do have a question actually about awesome astronomy. What's what's with the whole Cydonia thing? I mean ah. they, I mean they're, they're not really, are they? Oh, I mean I know, you know yeah. that many of well, truth spoken in jest That's... and all that, but
3: Well no, they are actually Martians.
0: Right, right. So I should actually show a bit more respect then.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, they're a bit crap. Don't let them hear <laughs> this. But they they are a bit crap uh, uh, trying to invade Earth. So, I mean, every episode is uh, a partial attempt to invade Earth and kind of uh, control the minds of Earthlings. And thus far, I mean, they almost succeeded at Christmas.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Christmas this year, they, they gave it a, a damn good job and they had crowds cheering. Right. If you want to listen to the Christmas special, the Christmas panto... <laughs> uh, you, you, you can hear it in there. They had the crowds cheering and chanting exactly what they wanted, but once again, their plans fell through because they're quite frankly idiots.
0: Well, the reason, <laughs> well, well, that's why I was asking because I was wondering what's taking it so long. You know, I've, I've, I remain unmolested and un, unprobed and whatever else they get up to. So
3: I know. I mean, the thing is, I think, I think they they go on about wanting to invade Earth and take it over, but I think. They don't really want it. It's almost like, you know that kid who wants the toy that the other kids got and then when they get that toy, they just don't want it anymore?
0: I had a feeling I that... I think
3: that is exactly what would happen.
0: Uh, I also thought that, because, you know, Mars is, as we've seen from the rovers, fairly uninhabited. Maybe they're just lonely.
3: Yeah, there is that. Although, you know, they do, they do like each other's company and they definitely like the sound of their own voice. <laughs>
0: yes i I have noticed yeah so (laughs) yeah (laughs) before before i get too much attention from them uh, 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 what can i do to change that subject
3: (laughs) (laughs) but well i don't know you can tell your listeners to not have any fear their invasion attempts have failed 60 times so far And I imagine that they will fail for the next sixty times. Oh, that's
0: a bit awkward. But
3: (laughs) yeah, but it provides entertainment and it keeps them happy. Mm -hmm. I mean, like you said, there's not a lot to do on Mars. We've seen there's not exactly, you know, bowling alleys and swimming pools. So they've got we've got to do something to keep them happy, right?
0: Right, right. (laughs) Well, Jen, this has been great. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Um. How can people reach you if they, if, if they want to ask you questions, ask you more, make friends? Yeah. You know?
3: So, um, if you want, you can, uh, email me, um, at the show at com. So the show at awesomeastronomy.com. Um, then I'll get them. They'll come directly through to me. Um, otherwise follow me on Twitter. Um, so it's at Jenny Millard, but it's Jenny, spelled J E N I, which is supposedly Welsh, uh, but mm, whatever. But yeah, so <laughs> at Jenny Millard, um, yeah, they're probably the best ways to get hold of me if you want to ask me any questions about anything. Yeah, you know, I'll do my best to answer them. All to right, that's my ability.
0: Yeah, I'll put those links on the on the show notes and uh, yeah. All right, well, thank you very much. It's been great.
3: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: That was Jen Millard uh, over Skype talking about exoplanet observations and generally being extremely interesting and a lot of fun to talk to. If you'd like to hear more from her, you can find her at the Awesome Astronomy Podcast or on social media via the links on the show notes page. If you like this episode, why not drop me a line by leaving a comment on the website at www.urban-astronomer.com or you can tweet me at uastronomer, that's the letter U, or you can visit our Facebook page. And if you're listening to this on the weekend of the 16th to the 18th of June and are in the Johannesburg area, well, come on over. Come to the Icon uh, Comics and Games Convention and say hi. Till the next episode, then, goodbye and clear skies.